Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of Women in Foreign Policy. I am Annika. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm a graduate student in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm Ashley, your other host. I'm a foreign policy practitioner working in Washington, D.C. Right now, you're listening to the monthly podcast of the Women in Foreign Policy organization, where each month, Annika and I discuss a different topic related to foreign policy careers and professions. Today, we're discussing the sometimes dreaded, sometimes celebrated transition from school to professional life. How do you know what you want to be when you grow up? What kind of job should you have? We're going to get into all of those things today. We have four incredible women that we're going to talk to. Um, but this episode is a part of our series on professional development, which you may have been listening to over the past few months. We've covered professional development organizations back in December. We talked about mentorship and sponsorship in January. Then we talked about networking last month in February. It's been a really exciting winter season for us here on the podcast. And we're, I guess, only getting going at this point. In the months ahead, we'll talk about public speaking and personal branding. And we're also really excited to be doing a special episode on navigating microaggressions. So as usual, if you have any other ideas or questions about professional development or really anything in this realm you want to hear us discuss, feel free to find us on our social media or let us know what you want to hear. So now before we dive into hearing from the incredible women working in foreign policy, on today's episode, we want to give them a chance to introduce themselves. So, hi, my name is Serena Chowdhury. Uh, I'm the editor of Africa Journal for Reuters News Agency. I'm based in London, but I grew up in South Africa. Hi, my name is uh, Lucy Goulet. I run and founded Women in Foreign Policy, and I also have my own digital marketing agency called the Inclusive Branding Agency, which focuses on helping brands to make sure that their marketing is representative of modern society. We are very excited to have Women in Foreign Policy's founder, Lucy, on this episode. Hi, my name is Nisha Patel. I am currently working for the United Nations in Cambodia with regards to the Khmer Rouge trials. I am Canadian born and bred, but I also have British citizenship. And I have degrees in uh, politics, law, as well as a master's in law in the subject area of international criminal justice and armed conflict. Hi there, I'm Zarina Khan. I'm the senior advocacy advisor at ActionAid UK, which is an international uh, development and humanitarian organization. Um, I graduated in 2011 with a BA in history. Um, I don't have a master's, so that's my highest uh, uh, level of, of sort of qualification. So as you can hear, the guests on today's episode are covering a pretty wide array of fields within foreign policy. We've got a journalist, we've got a lawyer, I mean, you you name it, we've got it. So. As you can imagine, their transitions into their current positions are probably pretty different. And before we get into the meat of, you know, what would you recommend or what was hard or anything like that, a couple of them uh, actually took the time to share their story about their transition from school into the professional life. So we just wanted to create a space for you to listen to that off the top. Lucy's story of transitioning from school to professional life is pretty remarkable. So um, I graduated from the LSE with a degree in international relations and history. I graduated in the middle of the recession, which wasn't the nicest time to graduate, to be honest. 
Um, not that I think there's any time which is easy, but I, I, I think that was a lot of people who thought that the employment market was going to be away, and then we all realized that it really wasn't. So the first job I got was actually an internship, uh, which paid expenses. I was able to afford it because, uh, well, my parents helped me, and I also I had some freelance jobs on the side, and I had done like summer jobs and things like that. Um, I got it because a person who interviewed me had also got to the LSE and they needed someone for only one week. And uh, at the end of the week, because I had nothing else lined up, I asked if I could come back and they said yes. And then I asked if I could come back and they said yes. And then I just kept turning up for like about six to nine months, I think. And I just stopped asking whether I could. Uh, so that was my first job. And then while I was at that first job, I met a, I met a woman who was uh, doing fashion PR who knew uh, the woman who would become my boss, who would become my first boss. Uh, she, was, she was setting up the copy department at Burberry. So she needed people. And I guess that I had mentioned to the fashion PR that, you know, I was looking for a job and she mentioned me and that's how I got it. Nisha also shared some information about her transition with us. So during law school, through a process of elimination, I started to strategically choose internships that would help me identify what I thought would be um, more relevant for me after I graduate. I had an interest in human rights and working at the international level, in particular the United Nations. So I decided my first internship in law school was going to be doing something with the UN that would give me insight to human rights. And I was aware of how competitive it was to get an internship with the UN. So I didn't even bother trying. I just decided I'd try to be clever and innovative and find another way that would give, give me exposure to the workings of the UN. And I started Googling on the internet human rights internships. And through the Googling process, I started to learn more about internships, the different types of internships that exist and what areas of human rights one can do work in. And um, eventually I came across uh, International Service for Human Rights in Geneva and the internship or one of the different types of internships they offer there would require, if I was successful, to go and monitor human rights meetings at the UN in Geneva. And so as a result of that experience, I decided I was going to pursue a career that required me to rely on my law degree. And so I continued that process um, of elimination in terms of, okay, now I know I want to have a career focusing are using my law degree, but in what area and, um, and how so. And so I did a few other internships. And uh, one of the key ones was landing an internship at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia after I graduated uh, with my law degree. And I networked a lot there during my internship and I got guidance and the guidance I was given was to go qualify first domestically, get the experience, and then transfer to the international level. So uh, basically, that was my initial struggles um, for getting the clarity 
And then I continued to have more obstacles to endure as I was seeking to um, try to get the qualifications and experience before moving to the international level. Serena's transition from school to professional life was pretty interesting. So Annika had always uh, wanted to be a journalist from the age of seven. So it was very much a a straight path for me, you know, through high school uh, up to university, the university I went to, which is in South Africa, Rhodes University. I did a a four-year bachelor of journalism degree. And I was always really interested in working for Reuters news agency because of the fact that it's international. Uh, I like the stories and and the variety of, of topics that they cover. And so that was always my focus. So when I I graduated, uh, I contacted the Africa editor for Reuters, and um, this was in the the writing, the text side. And I, you know, I said, Tim, I'd love an internship, anything you have available. And he responded and said, I'm sorry that there's nothing on the whole continent. So because of my ties to London, I decided that I would give it a shot and come to London and try Reuters in London. And again, I did the same thing. I just basically called, emailed people and I got a response and I was invited to come in. Uh, I met with uh, one of the trainees, uh, trainee editors. So Reuters has a graduate trainee scheme, um, which I only found out about after this meeting. But I met with him and he gave me three weeks work experience. I made sure I worked really hard and managed to get it extended to five weeks and then after that, this was in London. So um, I then applied for the graduate trainee program. But in the meanwhile, I had a good year before the scheme was going to open again. So I decided to go back to South Africa. I contacted the, the bureau chief in Joburg and to see if I could do any work experience there uh, with the knowledge that I now knew how all the systems worked because I had spent some time in London. And he was very kind. He gave me a three month internship. And at the end of that three-month internship, I was offered a job. So that was how my transition happened. Uh, But it definitely required a lot of perseverance, a lot of not giving up, even when someone says that there isn't an availability. You adapt and and you find a way, uh, I guess, just to get your foot in the door. Oftentimes, this particular life transition can be much maligned and everyone sort of fears it or dreads it because, you know, you're safe in school. You know what you're doing there. Um, So we thought it was a pretty obvious first question to ask, what was the hardest part for you? Serena had some really excellent commentary that she provided. I think probably the first job that I got, actually, because uh, as I mentioned, I I went from an intern to then being offered a job in the Joburg Bureau, Johannesburg Bureau. And the first job that I was offered was to be an equities correspondent covering financial companies, banking and insurance firms. And I had no experience of that from my journalism degree. I remember after taking on the job, thinking back to my lecturer who had always told me you should read the Financial Times. And I, of course, hadn't listened. I was only ever interested in being a war correspondent. So having that as my my first job was terrifying um, because I didn't feel like I had the skills or the experience. And so what I realized was that there was no harm in just being open in the newsroom and asking other senior people for help or going out and being quite open that, look, I'm still getting to know your company. Um, These are sort of some of the issues that I would like to ask you about. So I think that transition from doing the whole academic theoretical side to then actually having the practical experience does take time to adjust. 
Nisha also had some really interesting thoughts about what was hard for her as she transitioned from school to professional life. I think um, some of the key obstacles I had to overcome. So the first was getting clarity on my career goals. I come from a family where um, not necessarily every or the vast majority haven't reached the educational levels I've attained. And during my time, I, the net, the networking or the message about the importance of networking wasn't being at least received by me in a very strong way. So I really felt like I was figuring these things out myself. Fortunately, I did have somebody in the family to give me guidance. Although he was um, in private practice, he um, helped, you know, sit me down and say to me, okay, what is your career goal? What do you want to do? How are you going to achieve that? And one of the things I'm really grateful from that experience is him telling me, there's so many ways to get from A to B and it's not a question of right and wrong. It's just a question of how you're going to get from A to B. And I think that's something that's important for people to keep in mind, particularly if you're still at university and it's in, or you're in a competitive environment, it's so easy to get caught up and assess yourself in comparison to others. So others may know what they want to do or they think they know what they want to do. And, or you're in an environment where um, it's assumed the vast majority of people are going to go and do X after they graduate, but you're not necessarily sure that's what you want to do. So it's really important, I think, to focus on oneself and not to get distracted by what others around you are doing. Of course, you can use what others are doing to inform you better on what your options are, but not necessarily to set the benchmark of what it is you should be achieving. The other obstacle um, for me was getting a training contract in England and Wales. You know, I knew I was interested in advocacy. I really wanted to be a barrister, but I just didn't think the um, the um, environment that for being a barrister was conducive. And uh, so I thought, okay, I'll have better chances if I qualify as a solicitor and then move on into advocacy-related roles. And uh, for various reasons, and, you know, one can speculate as well, but I wasn't getting very far in the application process. And so it required me to be innovative and to find ways of how to move my CV forward whilst I'm still trying to get the training contract. And that's how I stumbled onto working for the Crown Prosecution Service in England and Wales. And yes, I did start off taking a job that I was overqualified for, but I had recognized the reasons of why it was a good idea to take that job. And I never lost sight of those reasons. And it eventually, or fortunately, within a few months, it paid off because I secured an internal vacancy role of being a prosecutor there. So I ended up getting better experience doing that job than um, a trainee barrister would be arguably getting. And I was getting paid a lot better than what a trainee barrister would be um, getting paid in England and Wales. So I would say that um, for me, those were the 
biggest challenges just because they took a lot of time. And having said that, now that I can look back with reflection, I'm glad I had the setbacks that I did because I know I wouldn't be where I am today because without those experiences such as working at the Crown Prosecution Service, I would not have the necessary experience to have quickly got where I am today. Also, when enduring the setbacks, don't listen to what others have to say because I remember when I joined the Crown Prosecution Service in a post that I was overqualified for, I was in an environment where people had been doing that job for several years and they were trying to get that internal prosecutor vacancy. And I got told shortly after I arrived that I wouldn't have a chance. And I honestly did not apply shortly after I arrived for a vacancy that arose um, within the organization until a manager a few levels above took me aside and asked me, If I was applying and when I told him my reasons why, he said to me, do not listen to them. You have to do what you can do and try go for it. And I'm so glad he pulled me aside on a Friday because the application deadline was on a Monday. So I didn't even have a chance to get feedback on my application before I submitted it. And it was that very application that resulted in me getting the job at um, a particular location in England and Wales. So for some people listening to this podcast, you might be thinking, awesome, great. I actually don't plan on making the transition out of school into the so-called professional sphere because I'd like to stay in academia. So we asked these women a little bit about this question. How do I decide whether or not I want to leave the academic world? I think a big part of it is also that it can feel really safe to be in academia. You you know what's expected of you. In many cases, if you've gone straight through from you know primary school, secondary school, university, you know what's expected of you. So how can you make that decision of whether or not to leave academia? Zarina had an interesting answer to this question. I mean, for me, I knew by the time I graduated um, from my undergraduate that I just didn't, I just need to stop. Um, I just um, wanted to come back to London. I wasn't in London at the time. Um, I, or I studied outside of London. Um, so in that sense, um, I also guess I didn't know what I wanted to do. And masters are so expensive. I mean, all degrees are expensive now, but masters are particularly so. And Student financing was a bit different then, so you had to take a bank loan and so on. So it was quite a lot of practical things as well that meant I knew I didn't want to go straight into it. Um, but yeah, that feeling of, well, even if I did do one, what would I do it in, um, was, was definitely um, quite a prominent factor in, in helping me make that decision. Once I started not just interning, but, but uh, started working in the sector, um, you know, with everyone I met and, and um, with different organizations I was working with, I kind of was learning about the kind of total plethora of master's degrees that are out there. Um, so I guess by that point, I was feeling quite glad I hadn't just gone straight into one because there were just so many more options available than, than perhaps I would have even come across in my research without having met, you know, actual professionals that were doing uh, that had done degrees and were doing, you know, had careers related to human rights and women's rights and development and conflict prevention and so on. So um, I guess by the time I was, you know, a year or two into my uh, into my career, 
I hadn't ruled it out, but I still, I was like, well, you know, I've got a job, so maybe I should just keep going with this and, and see where I land. And then I kind of always felt like, I would still say the option is still there, but I'm not, it's not in my plan, as it were. And I think the biggest factor in that has also been it's not stopped me from getting jobs. Um, I think I've noticed a shift in uh, in the sector when it comes to, um, you know, job descriptions and specifications. I think five, six years ago, a master's was listed as an essential requirement. And if it's a very, very technical job, it might still be, but certainly, you know, and I think I would even say for policy roles and research might be a bit different, you know, depending on the nature of the role, uh, the job. But certainly policy and advocacy roles, it often now says masters or equivalent experience. So, you know, if you've been, if you've worked in a program or you've, you've done, you know, some kind of volunteering or you've got something just a bit different um, that might stand out or really just something that helps you um, do the job, I found, have found that, that that's good enough and it's never been an issue. I mean, nobody's ever said to me, how come you don't have a masters or, you know, we're concerned you don't have a masters. Now that we've heard the stories, the good, the bad, the ugly from these women about the transition from school to the professional world, we dug in and just asked them right to the point, what advice would you give people approaching this transition in order to ease the process? Lucy starts us off with a great answer. So if if you're graduating from, you know, college, university, whatever you call it right now, you're probably in your early 20s, which means that you have between 45 and 50 years of career ahead of you. So if the job you get, if the first job you get isn't exactly the perfect job you thought you would, and I completely understand it might be soul crushing and it might be very disappointing. And, and, you know, I went to the LSE, which is a university with a lot of type A people. And you see all those people going getting amazing job. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Um, but ultimately, like you've got all that time to figure out, to figure it out and to get to that job you actually want. Zarina had some great advice about the transition between school and the professional world. I think one thing I remember feeling quite distinctly during that sort of transition um, from university to the first job was feeling very, very unhappy um, when I when I was doing something that didn't mean anything to me. Um, and then I remember when I was doing you know, three different unpaid bits of work, feeling incredibly happy. Um, so my advice would be to just listen, I guess, listen and, and, and take note of, of your emotions and the way you're feeling because um, I think generally being in a, in a situation or a job you're very unhappy in is, is not worth it. Even if on paper that is the best job ever, um, you like have hit the jackpot and you've got that job that everybody gets out of university and wants, like it, it probably won't be worth it in the long term. Um, or, you know, I found that the unhappiness was probably the thing that motivated me the most to, to, to quit my job and to find an internship or really to find anything that I thought would, would um, give me a bit more satisfaction and, and motivation. So, you know, take risks if you can. Um, I understand that it won't be everyone, but, but definitely pay attention to how you're feeling. Nisha had some great advice to share about this process. Another piece of advice is being innovative. Don't think that there's only one or two or three fixed defined ways to achieve something. There's other ways of doing it. And so it's how well can you think outside 
that square box and find those different ways. So, for example, I mentioned earlier about how I got insight into the workings of the UN without having to go through the rat race of getting a UN internship in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And also, again, how do I get legal experience without having a training contract? And I um, did that through research and career magazines at my law school university and saw an advert about Crown Prosecution Service in England and Wales. The fact that they have a law scholarship scheme, so they will pay for their employees to go do the mandatory one-year full-time course or two years part-time course to become um, a solicitor or a barrister. And on top of that, they also have the internal role of being a, pros- a lay prosecutor. And so that was my way of moving my CV forward whilst I was still waiting for the formal training contract. The other um, advice I would give is also understanding the bigger picture. And that includes the industry that one wants to work in. Because the better understanding that one can gain sooner rather than later, the more mature that individual, I think, is going to come off to potential recruiters, whether it's in written form in a covering letter or whether it's in an interview. And so to achieve a better understanding of that bigger picture, another way of getting that bigger picture is also subscribing to various email lists podcasts, news media, sources, and so forth, so that you have a general understanding of what's going on in that industry. And although it may never be said explicitly in writing or verbally, but you can start identifying trends or patterns and things. And that, again, can help facilitate one's interviews or applications for potential jobs. I think also another aspect that would help ease the transition is trying to strengthen one's soft as well as hard skills. So soft skills are generic things such as interpersonal skills, teamwork, communication, planning and organizing, any basically skills that can apply to any kind of job. I've just recently uh, stumbled upon Dear HBR and Women at Work, which is also being done by HBR. One of them focuses on challenges in the workplace And I can see it with um, interns. There's conflict in the workplace. They don't necessarily know how to handle it. They don't necessarily always handle it professionally. And that can sometimes do more harm than good. It's important to be assertive and to speak up if there's something going on, but it's how to handle it that makes the difference. And, you know, if I make it a bit more relevant with the UN for a job interview, you're more likely than not guaranteed to get a question that's going to ask, give us an example of how you handled conflict or disagreement. And then they'll choose whether it's with your, with a superior, with an equivalent or with a subordinate. So, you know, there is going to always be conflict in the workplace. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a question of how well you acknowledge it and handle it. One of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about when it comes to my own professional development is how to pick what kind of a job I should do. It sounds very stupid, but I I hope that some of you can relate to this. Basically, I spend a lot of time wondering, should my first job or should my next job be something that I love, something that I'm super passionate about? any job that I can get? Should it go in a direction to build my future career? 
basically, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of messages coming at millennials these days that we should be doing something that we're really passionate about and makes the world a better place. Often we end up stuck needing to take unpaid internships or have, you know, lesser paying jobs. So how do we make those decisions about where our next job should be taking us? We asked the women what they thought about this question, and Lucy had some really excellent thoughts. Any job will build your future career. Like I've interviewed for women in foreign policy, I've interviewed probably 150 women by now. And what I can guarantee you is that you can retro justify any job you've had. Like, you know, you can explain that this taught you such and such skills or that this is what you learn from it, like all those kind of things. So don't worry about that once you're in it and even more once you're exiting it, you will understand what you got out of it that you might not see while you're applying or when you're getting it. The second thing I would say is that there is no shame in making money. I know there's a lot of like, there's quite a bit that's written about how people start university or they start college, like wanting to change the world. And then they go to high paying job in a consultancy or in a bank and, you know, sell their soul. And when, when I graduated from the LSE, and, and that's going to be a slightly oversimplification because it wasn't the case for everyone, but like the women tended to go to not badly paid job but like jobs that didn't pay loads like you know it paid the bills and that was great but you know they went into like maybe journalism or like fashion like me or uh non-for-profit whereas the men tended to go into banking or consultancies and you know a lot of the consultancies train you really well but they also give you a much higher starting salary than the jobs that the women went to. So for instance, it took me 10 years to get to the starting salary that some of my friends were on when they left the LSE, except that 10 years later, that same amount, obviously with inflation, was a lot less, was worse a lot less. And I think that that's also part of the pay gap. It's not, you know, it's not an equal job, but it means that I'm I, I don't think I'm ever going to catch with them because now, you know, they're on like six figure salaries plus bonus, like this kind of stuff. And it like it's, it would take me ages to get there. So I think that there is something to be said for going into a high paying job with a good name if you feel like it, if you can get it. And then considering it as a great place to train, as a great place to start making money, to start being smart about your money, and then consider moving into like maybe a non-for-profit five or 10 years later. And you'll probably also be able to go slightly higher, although some people would disagree with me on that, but like you might be able to get slightly higher in like the new job than you would have if you'd like... Um, climb the ladder, and you might also be able to come in a slightly higher salary. And there's nothing wrong about making money. Can I just say that again? Zarina also had some great thoughts about what kind of a job you should be looking for. You know, if you get, if your first job is a job you love, then I mean, you are really, really lucky. Um, I think some people just won't have the option to wait. Um, some people, you know, I... Uh, had rent to pay um, I did not have the option of, of not working and waiting um, at least at that point
point when I um, graduated. I know there's a lot of, I think, you know, particularly speaking to young women now, there's a lot of, see, they put themselves, and understandably so, and I'm sure I was very, very similar, like under a lot of pressure to find, you know, a job that is not only something that, you know, you want if, if you are in a position of knowing the kind of career you want, but also something you can connect to, something that means something to you, that you find fulfilling. Um, you know, it's definitely not a secret that that first job in recruitment was not any of those things for me. While it provided the financial security, you know, I, I definitely wasn't learning anything, achieving anything, enjoying anything. Um, and that's obviously no disrespect to anyone that does do recruitment. It just, it definitely wasn't for me. But yeah, finding that kind of perfect internship that looked great on your CV or the perfect role um, right from the outset is really, really tough. So my advice to people is always, you know, you've got to go with your circumstances in a way. Like if you need a job, you need a job. But, you know, if you're out there applying for a number of things and say you really want a policy role, but all that's coming up is fundraising or, you know, you want to get into fundraising, but there are only admin roles. I mean, I shouldn't say only, like that's not to undermine all those kinds of jobs, but um, I think just don't let that, you know, I wouldn't, I would say to people don't um, hesitate about, about where you start. Like it's not the biggest determining factor. If you start in an admin role, you won't always stay in an admin role. If you start in fundraising, you're not then set in fundraising for life. Um, or even if you want to work, you know, obviously uh, for people wanting to work in foreign policy, then working in the domestic sector can seem like a, a bit counterintuitive. But but there are lots and lots and lots of um, transferable skills. Um, and, you know, there are many ways in which, uh, you know, one can work in a domestic sort of in a domestic sector that maintain their activity their interest their knowledge of what's going on in foreign policy you know it's not something you have to do day in day out to to engage in a topic that you really really care about so um you know my advice is to you know find think about those skills think about those skills that you will eventually need for a uh, a research role in a foreign policy think tank say and and kind of work backwards Mm. Um, and for instance, if you are in an admin role, uh, you know, no one, in my experience, no one ever says no to extra help. So if you're in an admin role and um, there's a chance for you to like proofread some research or, you know, to help do some desk research for, for a colleague or, to, you know, really participate, maybe help project uh, and manage a project um, or, sorry, a project manager or something like that, you know, those kinds of um, ways in, um, I find are really, really good because you, um, yeah, you get to sort of grow your skill set. I think looking back, that's something I really tried to do. I didn't really feel too bound by what was in my job description, that, you know, so I could get involved in, in some other things, even if, you know, as long as, um, you know, you're not giving yourself twice the amount of kind of working hours to do, like as long as you can get everything you need to get done, plus have that time to learn um, some new skills, then, then that's, I think, often a really good way to get started. I think one of the topics that comes up a lot when we talk about millennials and work and prioritization and balance is burnout. Uh, there's a big article that came out about burnout and BuzzFeed a few months ago, 
And I know that it's really kind of been at the top of mind for at least a lot of my uh, American friends. So we asked the women, how do we avoid burnout? What are some of the red flags or warning signs of exploitative or unhealthy work behaviors? And and how can we really um, be aware and, and create structures in our lives to avoid burnout and to be be healthier in that way. So Serena had some really, really poignant thoughts on this topic. Yeah, it's absolutely a crucial thing that everyone should be continuously aware of. I think especially when you're a young graduate, you really want to prove yourself. So you will push yourself to an extreme. And I know I did it. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that you know I would go in at, at weekends and, and work all the time. I would be consumed by, by news even to the extent that I would take my phone with me to the shower um, just to make sure I hadn't missed a story in the five, 10 minutes I was there. I was always aware of the fact that there's my work, but there's it's also equally important to have a balance and to have a life outside of my work, particularly in our industry. When I was a correspondent in Baghdad, I would work for six weeks at a time, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. So it was very intense. But similarly, when you're working even within a newsroom uh, inside, you're having to sometimes edit images that are really awful. And, and that also takes its toll. For me, I would say no life is, is worth a, a story. And, and that really does ring true. In terms of balance, it's often very difficult to get yourself away from I want to speak, just to tell you a little bit about something that Reuters does, which I'm I'm quite passionate about, and I really hope other newsrooms will continue to pick it up. We have a, a facility called the Reuters Peer Network, and it's basically a group of journalists who work for Reuters. Uh, we're based all over the world, and we're effectively there as peers um, to support our colleagues. So they're able to come to us confidentially and talk to us when they're feeling stressed or when they have something going on. And we also can refer them to a system that Reuters has, um, which is linked to an actual counseling company. And again, it's confidential. The company Reuters doesn't know about it, um, but you're able to call this hotline and whenever you're feeling stressed and, and speak to actual counselors who can help guide you through it. One of the other things, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm passionate about being aware of the work-life balance is, I guess, because as... I was a very young journalist when I went to to Iraq. I was 24, 25 years old, and I spent two years out there. And as I said, I was working 10, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, six weeks at a stretch. And then I would have three weeks break where I would actually be forced to leave the country um, because of the Reuters system. And that was to take three weeks time out, rest and recuperation. It's really hard to fully switch off even when you take those three weeks out and I found at the end of the two years I definitely felt burnout there was signs of PTSD I'm very aware of kind of where I stand as a person but I made a conscious decision at that point after Iraq to move back to London to give myself a few years of my 20s back in a city that I regard as home where I have family and friends and so my focus was then to not just have my work, but I had literally loads of people around me all the time who would be like, okay, Serena, let's go out for dinner tonight. Or Serena, we're doing this this weekend, or let's go away somewhere else. So I think 
you should always be really aware of that. I understand as a as a young journalist, you'll want to prove yourself. I understand you'll want to work hard and go the extra mile, but never let that little voice in your head disappear that tells you when it's time to stop. You know when it's time to stop. You'll know when you feel tired. And I think in our industry overall, there is a lot of conversation these days about mental health, and it's so important. And getting the right work-life balance is, is a starting point on that. Sometimes when we are balancing those competing priorities and we are trying to avoid burnout or we're trying to make the money to pay the rent and buy food and also keep, you know, some semblance of our passions in our sight lines, we might think, okay, we'll take this job and then I'll just jump ship whenever, whenever the next best thing appears. We wanted to know from this diverse panel of, of women who've worked for a, a few years in our mid-career, how long should you stay at a job before it's okay to leave and move on to the next one? Zarina had some compelling thoughts on this subject. I think it depends. I mean, if you're starting out, quite, you know, if it's your first job, um... And as long as you're not really unhappy there, I mean, it really depends on your circumstances because if you're unhappy, you know, unless there's something you really, really want out of that job, maybe you're waiting for a big event or some sort of big opportunity. I don't want to advocate that anyone stay in a job and be miserable, but like, you know, we can all put up with a certain amount of of, of um, things that we don't like if, if there's a bigger, bigger goal in mind. But in terms of, you know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, if I'm only here six months, the next employer will notice and will wonder what's wrong. Um, and I just, I don't know that's true. I've never looked at a CV and thought, oh, this person was only here for six months. I wonder what went wrong. Usually it just means they really want to do the job that you've advertised. Um, I'd like to think anyway. One of the things that comes up a lot as we are looking for jobs is that we are expected often to include in our cover letters and on our resumes all of the awesome skills that we have. And also, many of us, when we are graduating with a bachelor's degree, don't have a ton of marketable skills. So we wanted to, to speak with the women about their thoughts on skills building, um, what kind of skills people should be building, but then also... I, I did make it, you know, I make the joke that we don't have a ton of skills. I actually do believe that we all have lots of them. So how do we figure out what the skills that we already have are? How do we hone in on them? And then how do we figure out what new skills we should be building? Nisha had some awesome thoughts about skills. I would say it's a combination of creating an environment where people feel comfortable to feed back to you such information, as well as you consciously making and taking the time to reflect on your learning experiences. And I think the two together go hand in hand to help then strengthen one's self-awareness. Uh, I also think to help discover hidden skills, one should be open to trying new things. I mentioned earlier about taking the time to uh, reflect on one's learning experiences. And by that, I mean reflecting not just on the bad, but also on the good and reflecting on how one learned, if it was over a period of time, how they applied some of those mistakes or stumbling blocks and use that to strengthen 
their skills and the outcomes and writing all these reflections down on a piece of paper because I recall when I was trying to develop my career that you're getting exposed to so many information and things that it's not arguably easy to remember and absorb all of them and not forget about the meaningful um, little tiny experiences that can later actually be quite important. So I know, for example, in my current job, when I work with interns and we work on assignments together, I will be giving them regular feedback. But at the end of the assignment, when they can also look back with hindsight, I ask them to go away, take some time, consider what they thought they did really well, what things they thought they could improve on. And we have a discussion afterwards. One thing that Ashley and I keep coming back to in all of these professional development series is how helpful it is to the two of us. I know that I am going through all of this with so many of you as listeners right now. I'm in grad school. I'm looking for internships. I'm thinking about what I do when I graduate. And the thing that I keep coming back to is to both trust the process and enjoy the process. Um, I, I remember speaking with Nisha about this sort of dichotomy between both letting, trusting it enough and not trying to force every single job opportunity in your life, but then also showing up and hustling. So part of that is, in my mind, enjoying the process, right? That's following what you're passionate about. It's reading lots of books and listening to lots of podcasts and having lots of coffee dates and and looking for jobs that you think you would love and doing that active work. And then the other really important part of it is trusting the process. I mean, it's not it, it, trying to force yourself into a position at an organization, like logistically probably isn't going to work, but it also doesn't feel very good in the first place. So what I try to do that I have found a lot of success and comfort in is, is trying to balance that those two kind of forces and and I think it also we're young I mean we're in our 20s we have time and I I know I speak from a, a giant position of privilege when I say that um but for so many of you who may be in positions of privilege as well it's okay I think we're gonna we will eventually get there and figure it out I think that it's so crucial to just remember that you have time, especially as young women, because often society puts women in a position of having such a short shelf life that you often internalize that and you start to believe that women don't exist past 30 or at their best past 40. And you forget that you have the entirety of your lifetime to make a career. And within that period, within that making a career, you're going to make mistakes. And you're also going to have little happy accidents to steal a phrase from Bob Ross that just define what your life becomes. There's no reason to believe that just because it doesn't look exactly like a straight path to what you at 22 imagined your life to be, that it's not contributing to ultimately a better life than you could have imagined. I think it's also really important to remember that the span of your professional career is so long and will take so many twists and turns. And there's nothing saying that you can't wake up one day at 45 and restart your career and have another 20 year career that's so great and so fulfilling. And you have these options. And yeah, obviously, you know, different people have, have different levels of privilege and have different access to, to opportunity. 
But I would really encourage people not to believe that because they don't work in the White House at 28 or because they don't work in, in the government and sit in Parliament at 35 that they're done, that they have not succeeded. If you take until 32 to get a really good idea of what you want to do with your life, that's more than fine. That's, that's what life is for, is for figuring yourself out. So... I'd really encourage you not to rush the process. As always, we want this to be a conversation, so come talk to us on the internet. We'll be back at the end of April with our next episode about public speaking, and then one following that about personal branding, and that will close out this professional development series. I've really enjoyed working on this series, and like I've said before, to a certain extent, it was just wish fulfillment for me to be able to ask all of these really, really intelligent and brilliant women all of my career questions. Uh, once this series is over, we have an episode on microaggressions and how we handle them, which is a crucial topic that we really want to talk about with a wide range of women. And then we'll have a special one-year anniversary episode for the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and you can email us. We get a lot of great feedback and great ideas from people responding to the email newsletter, so be sure to visit our website and subscribe to that if you haven't already. Our Twitter account is at Women in FP. That's our organization's account. Both Annika and I are also on Twitter and on Instagram with our individual handles. I am at Vaguely Academic. And I'm at Annika EP. That's A-N-N-I-K-A-E-P. So as we've mentioned, we would love to hear from you. Um, but if you also like the work that we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you use. Share it with your friends. Share it with your colleague. Share it with the peers at school, other women in your life. And then leave us a review. That Reviews are so crucial and help other people to find us. So finally, if you really like the work that we're doing and it means a lot to you, please also consider supporting us via PayPal at lmgoulet, that's L-M-G-O-U-L-E-T, or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. We are an all-volunteer organization, so Ashley and I don't get compensated for our time. So any support that you can give us helps to make Women in Foreign Policy even better, take it to the next level, etc. We're really grateful to have the opportunity to do this work and to have this platform. It's really only from support from listeners and women and foreign policy members like you that we get to continue doing it. And last but certainly not least, we want to acknowledge the contributions of our podcast assistant who's been helping us out on the podcast recently. Thank you so much, Nina. We really appreciate it. You can find Nina on Twitter at NinaNagel29. That's N-I-N-A in a G E L 29. We so appreciate and value your time and thank you for spending it with us. Talk to you next month. Bye. Bye.